Well, good morning. Welcome to Chapel Street Church, South Street Campus, for worship today. Uh, we are going to begin a little bit differently this morning because it's a bit of a different kind of day for all of us. And that's because most, if not all of you, received an email this past week informing you that Pastor Jeff Frazier has been placed on an indefinite leave of absence from his role as lead pastor. Now, if you're visiting with us today or you're newer to Chapel Street, we're so glad you're here and I'm sorry you have to hear this early on in your time with us, but I hope that through it you'll learn something important about this as a church family. The email you received included information about why this decision became necessary, and I'm not going to review that information here. I encourage you to go back and read carefully um, and watch the accompanying videos. Uh, they're available on our website, at least for a little while longer, and look for the button on your homepage. And I'm sure this was... Um, Surprising and difficult news, maybe painful for all of you, as it was for me and all of us in leadership. Uh, and there are lots of things to think and feel. There, you may be feeling uh, grief and sadness. You may feel hurt or anger. You might feel confusion or compassion. You may feel like our leadership shared too much. You might feel like our leadership hasn't shared enough. Or you may just not know what to think or how to feel. And all that is perfectly understandable. Those of us who have been closely involved have felt our share of all of those things and even more. So where do we go from here? Our executive council will direct Pastor Jeff in a process aimed at personal and spiritual healing. And Jeff is fully submitted to that process. While we don't know how long that might be, we do hope and pray for a redemptive outcome and a restoration to ministry. The Executive Council has asked me to serve as an interim lead pastor, which I told them I would do as long as I'm asked to do so. I want you to know I will remain as a South Street Campus pastor, uh, but I will have to be at Kessinger Campus more often than I usually am. So there'll be times when I'll be here but only on video, and times I'll be here but out there on video, and I know that uh, you as my church family will understand that process. Our executive team... Our pastors and our staff will continue to lead all our ministries and all our ministry programming, just as always. And our prayer is that all of us will continue to be the Chapel Street family. And we're a large family now. Uh, over Christmas Eve, we had 5,200 people in 14 different services. So we're a big family. And we, together, we are the church. And we will continue to be the church. So yes, this is a difficult, confusing, and unforeseen time. But I and we uh, believe it's not only a painful moment, which it is, but it's also a moment of opportunity. I think great opportunity. When we can experience and demonstrate what truth and grace look like in real life. Many of you have already asked, what can I do? What can we do? Let me just suggest four things for right now. First, pray. That's obvious. Pray for Jeff and Aaron. Pray for their family. Pray for our leadership and staff. Pray for our church family. Pray for each other. Secondly, trust. Trust our leadership. We know you'll have many questions, and trust that over time those questions will be answered in the right way in the right time. In the meantime, our pastoral team and our executive council are available to our congregation. There are members of our executive council here this morning at this service. will be available out at the Welcome Center. If you have a different question or you want to speak to them, uh, a few of them will be out there. Thirdly, believe. Believe that God can and will, in his way, in his time, transform this into a beautiful story of redemption 
for Pastor Jeff and for Chapel Street. And finally, just be. Be the church that we've always been. I hope that we'll be a church that demonstrates the kind of love that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, a love that rejoices in the truth, but also a love that always hopes, always perseveres, a love that never fails. So before I pray and we begin worship, uh, just a couple of things. Uh, Our new preaching series is called Praying with Paul. Andrew will begin this morning here. And this month our focus is on prayer, and this was all arranged months ago. So each campus will have their specific time of prayer during these next four weeks. And our time here at South Street is over the noon hour on Mondays. So tomorrow, Monday uh, at noon, right here, if you're available, I'll be here and we'll have a time of prayer together. Uh, That's what we'll do for the next month. Finally, um, our good friend and and church member, Art Gustafson, passed away this past week. Uh, His service is here at South Street this Saturday morning, 9 a.m. visitation and 10 a.m memorial service. Keep Karen and their family in your prayers. Let's bow together. Lord, we're gathered here today as a church family, as your people, to worship you. But you you know our hearts, and you know our hearts are heavy today, heavy with sadness or confusion or just, we just hurt. Some of us, maybe many, many of us, may not feel much like worshiping at all, so I just ask you by your spirit in us and among us to meet us where we are today. Remind us of your great love for each one of us. Remind us of your love for your church. Remind us of the power of your love to comfort, strengthen, heal, and encourage. Remind us that it's today of all days when we most need to worship together. Thank you for meeting us where we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me now for our call to worship? Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Make music to him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. Wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May our, your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. We believe here at Chapel Street that God has created us for relationships. That's why we encourage you to join a small group and help make a, a big church feel like a small, close-knit community. So we're excited to share with you two opportunities to connect to God and to connect to others. The first opportunity is to join our Rooted program. We launched the first Rooted session almost five years ago, and since then, hundreds of Chapel Streeters have built friendships, discovered more about their purpose, and found community in a time where it seems to be more and more difficult to find. We've seen dozens of people choose to be baptized, find places to serve, break areas of strongholds in their lives, and share their faith story in many cases for the very first time. That's why I'm so excited to invite you to our next session of Rooted, which is launching Sunday, January 14th. It's a new year and a great time to find a group of people to go through life with and to discover more of how God has created you and what he's made you for. Rooted groups are small groups of people that meet each week for 10 weeks to do just that, to explore who God is, who we are in him, and to answer the question, how do I live as a follower of Jesus in the world today? And so today, if you're looking to get connected here at our church or simply wanting to take that next step in your faith, I'd love for you to join us this Rooted Session. 
And the next opportunity is something that we've been piloting here at the Mill Creek campus for the last two years. And now we're extending the invitation churchwide. The Alpha course is a safe place to explore the big questions that we all ask. And guests from any background can unpack the basics of the Christian faith. Do you have a friend or a neighbor or a coworker, maybe a family member that you've been praying for? Maybe you find yourself asking questions about what do Christians believe and what do I believe and why do I believe it? The Alpha Course covers the essential elements of the Christian faith in a way that's easy to understand for people who, who might be hearing the gospel for the first time or those asking life's critical questions. After each week's video, We'll have a time where guests can feel comfortable to dialogue about life and faith and God in a space that is judgment-free. Our first church-wide session will begin on January 27th. So bring your questions and find out that you're not alone. So whatever question you're asking, whether it's what do I believe and why or how do I live as a follower of Jesus, we believe that this is a perfect time to start a new rhythm, to grow in your relationship with God, and connect with the people around you. Well, good morning, everyone. I just want to highlight uh, uh, Alpha, uh, which is uh, a group that we are starting over at Mill Creek Campus for kind of introduction to the Christian faith. It helps you kind of wrestle with some of the questions. This is a great opportunity if you have friends, family members that want to learn more about what the message of Christianity is to invite them along. Uh, so you can find information on that website. And it's also a season where we're launching our rooted groups as well. Uh, and the reason why we do both of these things is because as a church, our heart is to constantly call ourselves back to the message of who Jesus is. Rooted uh, is kind of our first step for if you're wanting to get involved in group life, to kind of come and learn a little bit more uh, and, to, and to dig in. And if, if you are a believer and you're wanting to go deeper in your faith, Rooted gives you a great opportunity to talk about, again, some of the basics of, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to do that in community with other believers, uh, and to grow in your prayer life and in, in ways of serving in the community. Uh, so again, we, we share those two things because here in 2024, our heart as a church is to keep doing what we have always sought to do, to be a place where we can experience God's grace together, where we can be challenged to grow in our faith and, and make an impact right where we are. Now, I'm sure the reason I say that, uh, the news from this morning is still kind of lingering, and so I just, I just, I don't want to reiterate anything that Brian said, because he said it beautifully, but I just, before we come into God's Word, I just want to pray together, and I just want to say one thing that Brian has already mentioned, that this is an opportunity for us as a church to remind ourselves of the bedrock of who we are. We come and we sing songs each week, and we get in God's Word not because of our righteousness and our greatness, but because of God's greatness. Because in his great love for us, he has given his son for us. Even in our moments of brokenness and failure and weakness, God loves us. He's not afraid of our sin. He's not afraid of our messiness. And in fact, weeks like this remind us that behind kind of the regular ongoing life, there is a God who is at work amongst us. So I just want to pray that we would call ourselves back to that for our brother Jeff to pray for him. Uh, and that as we come to God's word, our heart and our minds might just be able to center a little bit better on why we are here to read God's word together. So let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to be together, to come to your word. God, you are indeed great, and you are the reason why we gather in this place. 
Lord, forgive us that sometimes we can become distracted from that. We can forget who you are and what you have done for us. But Lord, each week through your word, you remind us. And Father, I pray, especially on this week, that we would be reminded. I pray that our brother Jeff would be reminded of the great grace that he has in Christ. That we as the church would be reminded of the calling that you have placed on us to represent that Christ and that grace to the world. And Father, that you might use this as a moment where you shape us, you strengthen us, you grow us, and turn us once again back to yourself in hope and in joy and in trust that you are the one that makes all things new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Brian mentioned, we are starting a series on prayer this week, and I'm excited for this because prayer is kind of one of those aspects in our lives that if I was to ask you, how is your prayer life? How do you feel about your prayer life? I'm sure that there'd be more than one of us in the room that says, you know, I think it could be a little bit better. That there's places in my prayer life I want to grow, I want to learn more. I certainly feel that way. So I'm excited for this to to kind of renew as a church our vision of what prayer is. Uh, And as I was thinking about it this week, I was thinking uh, about icebergs. Now, my English accent, whenever I've talked about icebergs here before, people have heard me saying ice bags. Okay, we're not talking about bags of ice. We are talking about the icebergs that sank the Titanic. I've got a picture of the Titanic here. Titanic is one of those historical stories that I love. Uh, when I was a kid, I was fascinated by this story. I used to read tons of books on it. I watched the movie, and uh, I kind of just got lost in all the stories about it. And, and almost as famous as the Titanic itself is the iceberg. So we've got a picture of an iceberg here. And I remember being as a kid fascinated by this one fact about icebergs that only 10% of an iceberg is above the surface. It's kind of a scientific fact that if water has a, of ice, frozen water, has a buoyancy of about 10%, which means about 10% of its mass is going to be above the surface of the water, which means most of what an iceberg is is below the surface. And of course, that's what the tragedy of the Titanic was, is that they could only see 10% of what this was. They don't see what's beneath the surface. That's why they're so dangerous. And yet, what is below the surface is really most of what the iceberg is. Well, the reason why I've been thinking about this is I think we kind of have a view of of prayer that is kind of a 10% view. Sometimes when we think about prayer, when we say that word, what comes to our mind is really only about 10% of what prayer actually is in the biblical view. And when we get into the Bible and we read the way that God's people have prayed throughout history, when we read especially Paul's prayers in the New Testament for the church, with the church, we see a much deeper view of what prayer is. So kind of our hope in this series, Praying with Paul, is to take a look at some of Paul's prayers, some of his beautiful prayers, and remind ourselves, what is God asking of us when we come to him in prayer? What does God desire for us when we are in conversation with him in prayer? And I think what we'll discover is a really deep, rich view of prayer. And I, Pastor Brian's mentioned this several times as we've studied this uh, passage and these passages, is when you read Paul's prayers, often you're confronted with saying, man, I just don't pray like this, but I want to pray like this. And so I think that that's what God's going to do is he's going to grow us through again through his word. He's going to teach us how to have a vibrant, rich, deep prayer life. And we're going to start by looking at the first chapter of his letter to the Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Because in Ephesians 1, there is this incredibly soaring prayer that is just beautiful. Let me just read it, the beginning of it here. Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 17. 
Paul says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's where he says what he prays for. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, do you catch what Paul is praying for the Ephesian church there? Knowledge. He's praying for knowledge of him, of God. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Prayer is an effort to get to know God better. That's the primary purpose of prayer. It's not to kind of get our wish lists out. It's not to process our circumstances. It's to come before God and get to know him in the midst of our circumstances, to gain a knowledge of him. I want you to think about this. If you're familiar at all with the the history of the letter to the Ephesians, there's a lot of details going on in the background. First of all, at the time that this was written, the church in Ephesus was struggling with a lot of different things. There was persecution, there was oppression, there was questions inside the church of, of who God is. Paul himself actually was in prison as he wrote this letter. So that there's, there's a lot of circumstances around the Ephesian church and many of the churches around Ephesus for which Paul could have prayed. He could have prayed, Lord, give us a, a better emperor who's more receptive to the message of the gospel. He could have prayed, Lord, provide for us in, in our losses as Christians are losing their businesses and losing their homes due to persecution and oppression. He could have prayed for himself. He could have said, Lord, set me free so that I can continue to do the work that you've called me to do. All of those things are wonderful things to pray for. We're encouraged to pray for those things. Jesus tells us to pray for our daily bread, to pray for those around us who are struggling. However, what Paul chooses to do in this season of the church is not to pray for a change of circumstances for Ephesus or any of the churches there, but to pray that they would know God better. Isn't that interesting? How many of us, when we're going through a season of struggling and questioning and doubts, how many of us pray, God, help me to know you better in the midst of this? I don't enough. And when Paul talks about knowing God, he's not simply knowing, talking about knowing more facts about him. Paul doesn't say, God, teach us some really good trivia about yourself so that when people talk to to us about you, that we have all of the answers. When we were talking about this this week, Pastor Joe came up with a great analogy for this. The kind of knowledge that Paul is talking about isn't knowledge as for a test. So if I'm taking a physics test in school, I'm learning facts about physics so that I can answer the questions. What Paul is talking about is a deeper knowledge than that, a knowledge of kind of knowing someone that you love. When I talk about knowing Janae, my wife, I'm not talking about knowing facts about Janae. I'm not talking about being able to to do kind of a trivia test about my wife. I'm talking about having shared life with her, about having walked through things with her about having known the things that make her unique and beautiful and wonderful to me. That's what Paul desires for us, is to have a knowledge of God that is deeper and richer, that's a heart knowledge of having shared life with him, of having walked through life with him. That's how Paul wants us to pray. And so as he prays for us to have a greater knowledge of God, he prays for that knowledge in three specific ways. The first is to know the hope of our calling. The second is to know the riches of his inheritance. And thirdly, to know the incomparable power of God towards us. 
So I want to just look at those three things this morning as we travel through Paul's prayers to look at these three places of knowledge that he prays for us. And hopefully, God would, through his word, shape our own prayer life to look a little bit more like this, to, to know God better as we talk with him. So let's talk first about knowing the hope. That's the first thing that Paul begins with. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, the last couple of weeks of December, I've been getting a lot of telemarketer calls. Uh, and it drives me crazy. No matter how many of them I block on my phone, someone else calls me. And it gets to the point where they, they, some of them are just kind of ludicrous. You know, they're asking you about things that you've never done. Um, one of them called me last week and was saying, I'm calling from the student debt office to talk to you about your student debt. And I said, I don't have any student debt. So I don't know what they're doing. I don't know whether they've just got a mass list of numbers and they're just hitting them all. But I bet you there's somewhere in your life where you have received a call that is so frustrating to you. Usually because when a telemarketer calls or a scammer calls you, they're asking for you to do something for them, right? They want you to fill something out. They want you to give them some information because they're trying to get something out of you. They want something from you. The beauty of the call of God is it's the exact opposite of that. When God's call comes into our life, it is not asking anything from us. It is announcing to us what God has done for us. The call of God is not about what we do, it's about what he has done. To come to that, to trust that, to see that. That's what Paul starts with. He says he wants that our, the eyes of our heart to be enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. That's Ephesians 1.18. As he begins this prayer of, for, for revelation, for knowledge, he says the first thing is to know the hope of his calling. God's call is always an interruption. And in the case of the gospel, it is an interruption to our dependency on ourselves. That's what the call of God is. It's not to be a better person. It's not to tidy yourself up and be more religious. It's not to live your best life now and to have the kind of circumstances that are better or to have more confidence in yourself. The call of God is to abandon oneself. And to see that Jesus is your all in all. He is the source of all hope in life. It's to admit our own spiritual bankruptcy, our weakness, and revel in not in our own generosity, but in the generosity of a God who so loved us that he gave his only son for us. The whole message of the New Testament is built on that call. Let me read just a couple of passages when I think about this. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. It says, Paul says here to the Corinthians, consider your calling. So it starts right there. He's the calling. Consider this calling. And this is what it is. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So let me just pause there for a second. The whole message, the whole call of God is, you're not strong, you're not wise, you don't have what it, the, hope, the basis of the hope is. The hope is coming towards you, because this is what he says next. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The hope is in the Lord. Paul goes on to say, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture in his second letter to the Corinthians, for our sake he made him 
to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I hope you're feeling the repetitiveness of what I'm saying, because the truth is, the reason Paul prays for us to know this, is this is what we are most forgetful of. That the basis for our hope, the basis of our relationship with God, all of our spirituality is built on one thing and one thing alone, Jesus and his righteousness. We sang about it this morning, on Christ the solid rock I sang, although the ground is sinking sand. That's the call. God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And a 10% prayer life doesn't ever consider the basis of our hope. A 10% prayer life, the surface prayer life, doesn't go deeper and say, God, take this hope and apply it to every area of my life. Don't let it just be a trivia fact that sits in my head. Tell me, teach me, how does this change my life to know that Christ is the basis of all of my hope? A vibrant and growing prayer life is always seeking to be reminded of the hope of our calling. It wants to wrestle with it, dig into it, experience it on a day-to-day level. Every one of us are hoping. Another great line from Pastor Joe this week, he did a really good job, is he said that to be human is to hope. That's true. Every one of us are hoping in something. Every day. We might be hoping perhaps in money that we have enough money in our bank account. We're set. Okay, as long as I've got this amount, then life is going to go well. Perhaps we are hoping in relationships. Many of us look to our spouse or a family member to be for us the hope that we need. And what we do when we do that is we crush them because they cannot possibly be our hope. Perhaps if you're single, your hope is sometimes in getting a spouse, in getting into a relationship where someone can be for you what you think you need. And likewise, that'll end in disaster. This year is an election year. It's going to be very exciting. But how many of us already are putting our hope in the outcome of that? Putting our hope in who sits in a particular political office and allowing that governing the way that we treat other people, the way we respond in our life. Many of us put our hope in spiritual leaders, pastors, mentors, And that likewise can be painful because only Christ is worthy of our hope. And the truth is, not only if if we put our hope in the wrong thing, not only will it let us down, but as I've mentioned, we can cause harm to others. We can crush them because we put a weight on them that they can't hold. The hope of our calling is not to look at ourselves and what we have done, to look to others and what they have done. It's not to remind ourselves, well, we attend church and we pray prayers and we we live out certain behaviors. Our hope is not our commitment or work, it's his. Our hope is not our efforts, it's his. Our hope is not our record of behavior, it's his. That is the great hope of our calling and a vibrant prayer life asks God to take us deeper into that truth, to live in that truth in every area of our life. Second thing that Paul prays for us is that we would know the riches of his inheritance in the saints. I was watching a video this last week online with my kids. I get lost in too many silly videos with them. Uh, And there was a dad who, uh, he put a cookie, some Oreo cookies in front of his son. And then he put a big stack of cash over here. And he said, son, would you like two Oreo cookies or $500? And the young boy, he's probably about six years old, 
He immediately grabs the two Oreo cookies. And the dad said, now, now are you sure? You want the, the two Oreo cookies or do you want the $500? And the kid says, I want the Oreo cookies. That pile of cash meant nothing to him. It's too young to understand. He, all he wanted in that moment, because he was a child, was instant gratification. I want to know the riches of what's right here in front of me. These two Oreo cookies, they're going to be really good. And tragically, a lot of us in our life live with that same level of immaturity. We look to the riches of what's right there in front of us, rather to the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul wants us to know, he prays for us to know there is greater riches in who God is and what he has done than anything else in front of you. He says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, here's what is most interesting about this verse to me, is it doesn't say what are the riches of our glorious inheritance. It says his glorious inheritance. Now, isn't that a little bit strange? Because what it's saying is God's inheritance. I don't normally think of God as having an inheritance. I think of him as giving an inheritance, which is true. He does. To be in Christ is to gain an inheritance in him. But what Paul is drawing our attention to here is that God has a glorious inheritance in the saints, in the church. And he prays that we would know the richness of that. What Paul is pointing to is that by purchasing us, by giving himself for us, here is what God has done. Is he has made us his inheritance. We are what is coming to God. We are the treasure to him. Deuteronomy 7, 6, at the beginning of God bringing his people together, he preaches this through Moses. He says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, this is a great picture I came across this week of, uh, in the Old Testament, what would happen is that the high priest would enter the temple to pray to God, and when he did so, he would have to wear this, uh, this garment called an ephod. And in the ephod, there was 12 jewels that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. They were representative of God's people. God designed this. He instructed them to make this garment because I think that is representative that when Christ prays for us, we are the treasure that is on his heart. We are what he brings to God as an inheritance when he prays for us. The, we are the people that Christ has claimed through his own blood to bring to his Father. Here's what all this means for you. It means that you are deeply treasured by God. You are loved by God. He sees you as deeply valuable. We must know this. We need to let that go deep into our heart because it's better to belong to him than to belong to anyone else. It's better to be his than anybody else's. To pray to know the riches of belonging to him, to know that we're his inheritance, is to find our worth in belonging to him, in being loved by him, treasured by him. And we must know this because it's the most secure, loving, and life-giving relationship that you can ever find. Some of us desperately want to belong. We are seeking to be precious to someone or something. We want to matter. We want to be valuable. Honestly, in our day and age and in our culture, I think there's an epidemic of longing to belong. I think this is why young people go to certain new ideas and, and, and community groups and cultural groups because they, are, they want to belong. They have a deep longing in their soul to be valuable, to mean something, to matter. And when they find that somewhere in the corner of the world, no matter how illusionary it is, they give themselves to it. 
And it's not just young people, it's all of us. All of us. There are things in our lives that we say, if we have this, we'll be okay. If we belong to this group, we'll be okay. It'll give us worth. It'll give us value. Everything will be taken care of. And the outcome is that often we are paralyzed by unknown futures because we just don't know. We just don't know what's going to happen. Will we be taken care of? Will we matter? Paul is praying for us to see that if we are in Christ, we can know today that we have infinite value to God. So much so that he would give his only son for us. Paul is praying for us to see that because we are his inheritance, we are already taken care of and loved. And that is the richness of belonging to him. That is the richness of being his inheritance. That he looks at us, every one of us that are in Christ, the Father looks at you today and says, you are precious to me. You are valuable to me. Consider this. If we knew deeply in our souls, not just in our head, that 10%, but if we knew deep below the surface that we belong to God, that we are precious to him, that we are his glorious inheritance, we'd be able to share that more clearly and articulate it more readily to the world because we'd be certain of it for ourselves. We'd be able to tell our friends and our family members. And I am certain that if we could be clear about it, that if we could point to this, of the joy of belonging to him, there would be many people in our world that would run to him. Because people are longing to belong to one who loves them, who puts value on them. And when they see that Christ puts infinite value on us by giving himself for us, they would run to him. There's no group to whom you can belong that gives you more worth and value than God himself. But even more than that, if we know our value is the inheritance of God, if we know that belonging to him makes us precious in his sight, then we won't fear things as much. We won't fear admitting sin to begin with because we'll be able to be honest about our sin because we know that we're not rejected by God. We are loved by God. We are precious to him in his sight. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us to make us his inheritance. If we knew our value in the eyes of God, we wouldn't fear changing circumstances because our future is certain. We wouldn't fear rejection because we have been claimed by God. This identity, if it goes into our souls, will completely change you. Change your whole life to know that you belong to him. But we forget it. Or we don't know it deeply enough. And so we must pray that God reveals this to us. Remember, Paul is praying to a group of Christians, or for a group of Christians. This is not unbelievers. He's praying for the church. So he's saying, I know that you have heard this. I know that this message has been preached to you, but I'm praying that you know it even more, that for the rest of your life, you'd go deeper and deeper and deeper into it, that every place of forgetfulness in your heart would be reminded that God has claimed you as his own. And he's the really good news for us. The strength to experience all of this is also readily available to us. Because so far as we've talked about knowing our hope and knowing our, our, our riches, sometimes we say, well, how do we make that happen? How do we, what do we do? How can we work harder to know this? And we don't work harder. We look to his incomparable power. That's the last thing that Paul prays for us, is to know the power. Ephesians 1, verses 19 through 23 says that we would know what is the measure, immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, there's a lot there, so we're going to try and take it just a little bit at a time. But Paul says that he's praying we would know his immeasurable greatness, the immeasurable greatness of his power. What is his power? What is his great power? Well, the example that Paul gives us in this passage is that he raised Christ from the dead. Greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, of all the examples of God's power that Paul could have used, he chooses this. He could have used hurricanes. He could have used tidal waves, which many times in the Psalms and in other parts of the Bible, God's people try and use these images of great forces of nature to, to exemplify God's power. But Paul says the resurrection of Jesus is greater than all of those. It's a better example of God's power. Why? Why is the resurrection the most poignant example of God's power. Tim Keller talks about this when he was preaching on this passage, and what he said is that death is the real power in our universe. And the reason why is because death is the one thing that no one can stop or escape. It's the one thing that we all face. It's the reason we lose our hair, some of us earlier than others. It's the reason why we get sick. It's the reason why we age. It's the reason why the world crumbles. It's the reason why our very universe itself is slowly cooling and dying because everything moves in that direction. Death is an unstoppable force to us, but not to Jesus. Jesus is the only one in all of creation who has faced death and conquered it. God has defeated the ultimate enemy, He has broken the bands of death like string, Tim Keller says. It is the greatest display of his power. Tell me, what in your life is more insurmountable than death itself? And yet God has conquered it for you. And that power is continually towards you. The power that has reversed death itself is towards you, Paul says. He prays that you would know that, that it is towards you. We tend to think about the resurrection, purely is coming back from physical death. But actually, it's more than that. What God accomplishes in the resurrection is more than that. It's not simply coming back from death. It is to live a totally renewed life, a life that is stripped of any fragility or uncertainty. Paul even says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day because of the resurrection of Christ. Because of what Christ has done, if we are in him, we are being renewed day by day. Do you know this? Do you know the power of the one who has conquered death? Later in the same letter of the Ephesians, Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever Amen. He is able to do more than we could ever imagine. 
We need to know that power. Some of us are leaving our power tools in the toolbox. We are trying to build this life that God has called us to in our own strength. And what Paul says is no. Pray that his power would be made perfect in you. Pray that you would know it. That you would experience it. If you are aching to be made new, if you are longing for God's power to be made known in your life, the best thing you can do in 2024 is to pray that God would help you to know it. A vibrant prayer life is always about knowing Him. In 2024, I think the greatest thing that we can do to begin our year together is to pray that we would know Him better is to pray this prayer, Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, is to pray it again and again and again, that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, to know the hope of our calling in him, to know the riches of the inheritance in him, to know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. We should pray this for ourselves, for our spouse, for our children, for our siblings, for our friends, for our co-workers, our neighbors, and watch what God does. Because there is so much more transforming power in knowing him better than there is in changing your circumstances and in gaining control over your own life. In fact, so great is it to know him better that God calls us to abandon control of our own life, to surrender ourselves to him that he might care for us better than we could ever care for ourselves, that he could strengthen us, uphold us, renew us. Our greatest life, need in life is to know him better. And that's why he closes this prayer by saying he put all things under his feet. Give him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We've already mentioned it this morning, but the reason we gather is because of him. Our hope in this place is Him. And so I'm so glad that as we begin 2024, one of the things that we're going to do together is to come to the Lord's table and remember Him. One of my favorite theologians, a man named John Stott, says that at the Last Supper, at the Lord's table, we see the strangest thing. Because Jesus appears at the Last Supper to have the most dramatic ego of anyone who's ever lived. Because he tells his disciples at that table, I am your Lord and Master. I am God. You need me. You need my body and my blood. And yet at the same time, what do we see about that same Lord and Master at that supper? That he is willing to wash our feet. That he is willing to lay himself down for us. This is why God has appointed him as the head of the church. Because though he is our Lord and Master, he humbled himself and he gave himself for us so that we would have hope, riches, and power in our life. So I want to invite you to do something a little bit different. Maybe it's not different for you, but this morning, come to the Lord's table and be reminded. As you take his body, as you take his blood, be reminded. This is not Chapel Street's table. If you are new with us, if you're a guest with us, you are welcome to come and join us in reminding yourself of him, because this is his table. He is the head of the church. And if you're curious, that's okay too. But I'm going to pray for us this morning that we would know exactly what Paul 
has prayed for us to know. That we would nourish ourselves on the truth that he is our hope, our riches, and our power. So let's pray together. Father, we come now to your table. The table of your grace and your mercy. The table which reminds us of what you did for us. Father, I pray that as we come, we would know. Know in greater measure, in the depths of our souls, that you have made yourself our hope. That you have given us riches in adopting us, in making us yours. And that you have lended to us the greatness of your immeasurable power to renew us, to restore us, and to redeem all of creation. Father, help us to know you. Enlighten our hearts this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. On Jesus' last night, he sat with his disciples around a table. He told them of what was to come. And he took bread and broke it with them. What he said to them is that this is my body, which is broken for you. This morning, take and eat this in remembrance of the one who was broken for you. In the same way, after that, Jesus took a cup. He said, this is my blood, which is poured out as part of a new covenant, a new promise for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this this morning in remembrance of the one who bled for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you once again for the opportunity we have had this morning to come to your table and to be reminded, to grow in the knowledge of the one who has given himself for us. Father, I pray for us this morning that you would renew us in the hope of your calling, that you would renew us to know the riches of being your inheritance in the saints, and to renew us to know the power of the resurrection that is at work in us who believe. May we trust you, may we love you, and may we follow you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now the benediction. Go now in the grace of Christ, under whose feet God placed all things, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May we know his hope, his riches, and his power in greater measure. Amen.